Thanks for listening to the Prevention of Blindness Society of Metropolitan Washington event replay channel. The replay of this event starts now. All right, and we will share this recording uh, later this week. Uh, if you want to access any other recordings, you can visit our YouTube page. Uh, our YouTube handle is Your Eyes DC. You can also go to our website, youreyes.org. Recordings have timestamps on them, and um, you can use this to navigate for your speakers as well as the topics that interest you. Okay, a couple of announcements for you all. Our next town hall meeting is going to be on Wednesday, May 17th at 11 a.m. We're excited to have Ms. Catherine Frederick join us. She is from Vision Aware. Now, Vision Aware is an online resource and a really, really valuable one for anyone with vision loss or their loved ones. Uh, with over 100 blogs, ample resources, and ways that you can connect with others, this resource is a valuable tool for anyone with vision loss. So it, uh, it's a very, very great resource, and I'm excited to have somebody join us from them. POB Reads, our Talking Books Book Club, will continue with a summer session. Our next meeting is going to be Friday, May 5th, and the selection is Velvet, Velvet, excuse me, Velvet Was the Night by Sylvia Moreno-Garcia. Ms. Moreno-Garcia is a Canadian-Mexican author, and the selection is a mystery tale with romance, deception, and action. All of the selections for POB Reads are available through our, the Talking Books program, the Bard mobile app, Audible, and many other audiobook platforms. Club meets virtually on Zoom, and they meet on a bi-monthly basis. If you want to learn more and sign up, visit pobreads.org. It's that time of year again, baseball season. We're excited to share we've been accepted again this year in the Nationals Community Tickets Grant Program. This program um, is really great because the Nationals will provide tickets to nonprofits such as ourselves to provide to community members so we can all go together and experience a day at the park. The first game we've been offered is Wednesday, May 3rd at 7.05 p.m., where the Nats will uh, tee off against the Chicago Cubs. If you're interested in uh, getting tickets, you can email me at scurry at youreyes.org with the names of those attending. Now, we do want to allow everyone a chance to sign up, and we do have a limited number of tickets, so only four tickets per customer. Save the date. Back by popular demand is Being the Light, Friends and Family Connection. This event serves to bring both those with vision loss and their friends and family together to learn about living with vision loss, having those conversations on the topic, and to get each other connected with others experiencing similar challenges. The luncheon panel discussion is on Saturday, June 10th at 12 p.m. If you would like to sign up, you can visit beingthelightpob.org. Again, that is beingthelightpob.org. As a reminder, our resource hotline is available Monday through Friday, 11 a.m. to 5 p.m. And our Bethesda and Alexandria Low Vision Resource Centers have in-person appointments available. Bethesda on Thursdays and Fridays, from 11 to 5, and Alexandria on Mondays from 10 to 5. 
Note that slight difference. Now, if you'd like to make an appointment, you can give us a call at 301-951-4444, or you can email us at events at youreyes.org. Finally, we've made it easier for you to listen to recordings of our events. I mentioned earlier that we have timestamps. Now, these town hall calls, you can access them on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, and more. You can even ask your Amazon Alexa to play recordings with just your voice. If you have an Alexa-enabled device, you can say, hey, Alexa, play Prevention of Blindness Society of Metropolitan Washington podcast. Try it out. Okay, now on to today's topic. Our topic for today is Blind and Visually Impaired Advocacy Update. The Americans with Disabilities Act, or ADA, was signed into law in 1990, more than 30 years ago. This sweeping legislation has made a world of difference in ensuring that people with disabilities, such as vision loss, are not discriminated against. However, even today, there's still much that can be done. Even this past week, a federal court found that two large cities were not providing accessible lived environments. Therefore, advocacy for disability rights remains a very important topic. So today, I am honored to introduce our guest speaker, Mr. Paul Didario from American Council of the Blind. Paul has lived in Arlington for about 40 years and is a retired database manager. He's had virtually no peripheral vision for his life and at around age 25 was diagnosed with retinitis pigmentosa, or RP. Beginning in his mid-30s, he can no longer read print material, and he used his remaining eyesight with assistive technology in order to continue to work. Paul's made numerous trips to Johns Hopkins to participate in various research projects, including a clinical trial of the Argus II system. Paul's earned a BS degree, a Bachelor's of Science degree, in public communications from Boston University, and has a master's degree in congressional studies from George Washington University. He and his wife, Debbie, are parents to two boys. And Paul currently serves on the Virginia Board for the Blind and Vision Impaired and has served in many capacities in the American Council of the Blind, including being the president of their Northern Virginia chapter. Today, Paul is going to review legislative imperatives that ACB and like-minded organizations are working to achieve in the 118th Congress. So without further ado, Paul, you have the floor. And you'll want to unmute yourself. Good morning. I, I appreciate uh, the fact that uh, unmuting is important and I neglected to do it. So pardon, pardon the delay. I hope everyone can hear me. And thank you for the introduction, Sean. And thank you for the invitation to speak at the Prevention of Blindness um, I, for many years prior to the virtual meetings, attended uh, the events in person that the POB has sponsored and uh, have certainly attended many virtual and have heard many speakers speak on uh, important topics and have learned a lot. Uh, as, as Sean said in his introduction, it seems the work of advocacy really never is finished. And that's part of what we'll talk about today. And uh, we'll talk about general aspects of advocacy and on and some very specific 
examples of what has is being done now and a little bit of what has been done in the past. Uh, as, Sean, as Sean said in the introduction, I've over the years have had some experience in a variety of uh, advocacy efforts at local, state, and and nationally, and uh, continue to learn. In fact, invariably, when I'm speaking to a group such as today, someone in the group will have valuable information that I certainly wasn't aware of. So I, I think that's that's one of the important things to remember is we, we learn from each other. Uh, the I thought before I got into the uh, specifics of some advocacy efforts that are going on, I would talk a little bit about sort of general aspects of what is that, what is advocacy? And I one definition that someone has said many years ago that I've always remembered is sometimes advocacy can feel like you're hitting your head over and over against the brick wall. And eventually one of the bricks just moves a little bit and that gives you hope, momentum, whatever you want to call it, and you keep going and you keep going. And uh, hopefully you ultimately will be completely successful. But as I'll illustrate in a, in a minute here, the um, the reality is sometimes when you're successful, um, you, you still have to continue to advocate. Um, I like to tell people that the you have to remember three P's for sure. And a fourth P when you think about advocating, you must be passionate about your subject. You must be persuasive. And you must be persistent. And the fourth one might be the hardest. You might also have to be patient. And uh, that doesn't mean you, um, you don't continue to be persuasive and persistent, but you also have to realize that sometimes things just take a long time. It's also important when advocating to build coalitions. I am a member of the American Council of the Blind. There are several organizations uh, working on behalf of people with a variety of disabilities and some cross disabilities in addition to ACB and the blindness world, the American Federation for the Blind, the National Federation of the Blind, the uh, Blinded Veterans Association, um, have all uh, over the years coalesced around different issues. And that's very important. Uh, as, as I used to say when we were kids and swimming, there, there's safety in numbers. Well, there's also safety in numbers when doing advocacy. So I also like to emphasize to people that you really don't need to have a lot of experience um, advocating what you need to have is knowledge of your issue and and the facts. You'd be able to tell your story. It's uh, counterproductive to scream. <laughs> it's usually not very effective, but telling your story is very important, whether you're advocating at the local, state, or federal level. So the first uh, item I'd like to mention is something that happened very recently that uh, I think illustrates a lot of aspects of advocacy that I was just explaining. The uh, uh, ACB led a rally across from the White House in Lafayette Square on March 10th, 
And what was that rally all about? Well, it was about accessible currency. And I was surprised when I learned this several years ago that uh, the United States is one of the very, very few countries in the developed world that doesn't have accessible currency, which means uh, either a tactile marking on currency, so you know which, which it is, instead of 1, 5, 10, 20, et cetera. Or in some countries, they apparently they use uh, different size for different denominations of currency. So <laughs> this one, remember I said you have to be patient. Well, the initial bill, the first bill that was introduced to require accessible currency was introduced in 1972. And over the years, <laughs> there have been efforts to continue to uh, require that the Bureau of Engraving and Printing redesign bills, which they do, they redesign bills. And as many of you know on the phone, they're most uh, recently have uh, announced plans to redesign the $20 bill with the portrait of Harriet Tubman. Well, in 2008, there was a victory when a federal judge ruled that the U.S. Treasury, as a result of losing a lawsuit, must provide accessible currency when bills be, be, become redesigned. Okay, that was 2008, which is 15 years ago. And over those years, they have held focus groups, the, the Bureau. I participated in some with different different possibilities for a redesign, whether there'd be a marking of one mark would indicate a $5 and two would 10, et cetera, different systems. But there'd never been an announcement that this is gonna happen and this is the timetable. So on March 10th, a little over a month ago, they, uh, there was a rally and it was a very rainy day, <laughs> for those of you who don't remember that particular day, and leaders of ACB uh, and the Treasury met earlier in the morning prior to the rally. And at that meeting, the Treasury Department committed to uh, timetables and, uh, and, and efforts that they will make so that when the redesigned bill is introduced in 2026, uh, it will include an accessible feature. I don't know that there was a specific commitment to a specific uh, system, but it will be accessible so that you can, by touching a bill, you'll be able to know what denomination it is. At least this initial bill, a 2026, I believe, is the $20 bill. Uh, and they also committed to providing benchmarks so that they can be uh, checked along the way to ensure that they're keeping to their timeline. So that's an example of a couple things. One, things take time. Uh, two, there was success as far back as 2008, yet the product of that success has not yet been realized. But it will be. It will be. Uh, I'd like to stop at this point to uh, ask if there's any questions about that specific uh, issue of accessible currency or any any comments or questions about the sort of the general uh, aspects of, of uh, advocacy. And again, folks, to unmute yourself, there's a button at the bottom left of your screen. 
You can also uh, click on your keyboard, Alt plus A or Command Shift A if you're on a Mac. And star six on a phone. Okay. If, uh, if I think I have, I have a question. Okay, Hi. Hi, everyone. My name is Joy. So with uh, cryptocurrency and I guess technology advancing, what do you think we can do to adapt to those changes? Like how could we support the low vision community with um, technology advances in reference to currency? That's a good question. Um, off the top of my head, I, I don't know a good answer. Um, but I have read recently that um, sort of one of the theories of, of the focus on paper currency, which, which there is, and that's the one I just discussed, that uh, there also needs to be focus on the fact that over time, the, the trend is expected to be that fewer and few people will need to carry cash and that more and more transactions will take place uh, digitally that don't require paper currency. I have to say at this, at this, as we meet today, I don't have a good feel for the issues that will be involved, um, except for, of course, the accessibility of the electronic devices used, um, be they uh, online devices or, or being physical devices that one carries, such as smart credit cards. Thank you. Hi, can you hear me? Mm -hmm. Yes, my name is Millie and I am a former financial management officer from the United States Air Force. And um, I really appreciate the work you guys do in general because I learn so much all the time. What I wanted to uh, comment at this moment as we are talking about accessibility just this morning, my husband uh, found out that one of the major electronic providers, I don't know if it's Amazon or Google, but they have come up with a process by which you could register multiple accounts. Let's say you have a Visa card, MasterCard, a bank card, a store card, and uh, that as you are going to pay for the purchase of whatever item, the let's say that you exceeded the credit on the first card, automatically the system will catch on to the second card and so on and so forth. So I was very impressed by that because although that wasn't done in, in the interest of accessibility for the blind is certainly also helpful in um, I'm looking forward to the days that we get rid of currency because it's inconvenient. But um, in terms of crypto, lady mentioned earlier, uh, I'm not too sure that they can do much for you know accessibility because crypto is still you know trying to sell the story that is a viable. Uh, investment and so on and so forth. But thank you so much for uh, 
looking at this topic because as we go through the transition, it is certainly good to be aware that it's coming and I'm looking forward to whatever happened in the next couple of years with a change of uh, from the federal government. Thank you. Well, thank you for your input. I, I did notice I was listening to you that one of the points that I think needs to be made um, to follow up on what you were saying was sometimes something is invented theoretically or developed to help people with disabilities, yet the development helps everyone. And some of, some of the more common ones we think of are, when, when I grew up, we didn't have anything like uh, curb cuts. And curb cuts obviously help people in wheelchairs. They obviously help people with strollers and numerous numerous other activities I'm sure mm -hmm. everyone on this phone has, has experienced. Mm -hmm. Thank you. Um, we had one you, person, you're welcome. We had one person share a very helpful thing. While we are trying to get accessible currency, right now there are apps out there that can help identify it. Um, for example, Frank mentioned that Envision AI can recognize $20 bills and perhaps others. So that is a good point, Frank, that you know, while they're working to get this accessible, there are some apps out there that can be of assistance for you. That's a good point, and I, I regret I didn't mention that. Um, another app is Seeing AI, um, in which um, I, I've used before myself. So yeah, there, there definitely are apps to do that. And um, I, I hope if people aren't aware of those, I should mention this too. I'm, I'm happy to have anyone communicate with me to follow up on any of the, what we talk about today. And my email address is fairly simple to remember because you don't have to know my last name and it's it's a hard spelling. But the email address, and I'll mention this also at the end, is mostreliable at verizon.net. So it's the two words most reliable together at reliable most reliable at verizon.net. Um, I wanted to turn now to some specific pieces of federal uh, legislation that um the American Council of the Blind is is uh, hoping to uh, succeed in the 118th Congress. Um, I should first mention a couple things that are obvious to I'm sure people on this call know. Uh, a very small number of, of bills that are introduced in Congress uh, actually become law, and that's when times are not uh, um, as well, should we say volatile as they are now, where both houses of Congress are introduced, are, are controlled by two different parties, and that control is very close. So uh, it's hard to get legislation through in normal and on good times, and this is not a particularly good time for legislation to pass. Um, the ACB of Virginia is one of about 70 affiliates of the American Council of the Blind. The Their... Um, the address is acb.org, is the national organization. They have about 70 affiliates. Many of them are geographic, and obviously by state, but also special interests. There are, uh, there's the teachers group, there's the next generation group, there's the lawyers group, government employees, guide dog users, so several affiliates. And in March, as we do uh, every year, we met with as many members of the Virginia congressional delegation as we could. Um, the virtual meetings have actually helped. We're able, we're able to meet with more of them and uh, it's, it's in some ways more efficient. We, we can also demonstrate some of the products we talk about uh, easier during virtual meetings that we don't have to you know, bring up the Capitol Hill. So in some respects, the, um, the virtual meetings have helped. 
The um, first issue I'd like to talk about are the four legislative imperatives. And, and I should mention, too, what, what tends to happen uh, with, with bills is, uh, well, first they become issues, and they don't always get introduced in legislation. These four particular issues did get introduced in the previous Congress. They did not eventually pass, obviously. And we expect that some bill will be introduced for each of these. In the 118th, though, only one has had a, an actual bill number assigned so far. And I'd like to, to mention this one that I think it will affect probably everybody on this, on this call. It's called the Medical Device Non-Visual Accessibility Act. And the number, uh, the house number is HR 1328. And well, what is this all about? Well, as many of you, I believe, will agree, the, um, there are more and more advanced pieces of technological equipment that, um, that now have features that allow people to, to monitor or to test their medical uh, situation at home. These, so these home, home use medical devices in, in, include um, uh, blood pressure readers, uh, glucose monitors, even at home at home chemo treatments, uh, uh, CPAP machines, for example, and they um, they're more advanced than ever. They have digital displays, and therein lies the problem. The digital displays display information, and if you're blind, low vision, and can't see them, then uh, that doesn't really uh, do you any good. And the good news is technology exists that would allow these digital displays to be able to provide some audible uh, feedback or audible uh, tone so you can hear, know what you're, um, know what you're missing now. I'll give you just one example. My talking with my younger brother recently, he uses a CPAP machine and he can see, I can't. And uh, he explained to me that when he wakes up in the morning, he's supposed to read the display on the screen and that there are certain values he needs to take note of that. There are other more troubling values uh, displayed. He needs to let his medical provider know. Well, obviously I couldn't do that if I had, I mean, thankfully I don't have to, I have that need, but if I did, I wouldn't be able to use that machine. So this particular piece of legislation, H.R. 1328, says um, the Food and Drug Administration is, has the responsibility for approving these machines. And it says when you go through the approval process and you, you know, check, go down the checklist, does it do this, does it do this, and you test for this and that, test for accessibility. Um, that's kind of a bit of an oversimplification, but that's essentially what we're saying is, does, it, does existing technology, uh, has that been incorporated into these devices? Um, and without such things, uh, people who are blind, low vision, deaf blind, will not be able to uh, manage their health at home as other people can now do. And, and I want to emphasize, as far as we know, if, Technology does exist to incorporate into these devices. Um, and the good news is it was, and when it was introduced, it was done so in a bipartisan fashion. The uh, co-chairs of what's called the Disability Caucus, 
one uh, Republican, one Democrat. Uh, they co-sponsored the bills. Uh, in Virginia, two representatives, uh, Conley and McClellan, the newest, newest, newly elected representative, have co-sponsored. And three representatives in Maryland, uh, Representative Sarbanes, Trone, and Russ, Russ, whose name I can never pronounce right, Ruthelsberger, um, have, have co-sponsored. Uh, there are currently 45 co-sponsors the last time I checked, and we hope to build momentum and get this piece of legislation passed um, in, in the House and reintroduced and passed in the Senate and signed into law. I, um, I'll stop at this point to, to see if there's any questions or comments about this particular legislation or issue. Morning, Paul. Hello. Yeah, hi. This is uh, Joe Awkward. Um, first of all, oh, I, Joe. I, yeah, good to see you. Yeah. Fellow RP guy, too. So, um, yeah. Yeah. So, I really like what you shared that couple things. Uh, one thing with disabilities is um, it's very bipartisan. So, it's, it's one of those issues that uh, we really can get both sides involved in. And I also liked what you shared. Um, you know, I have worked in the disability field for a long time myself, that there are a lot of other groups, you know, working, you know, as well as our ACB, um, uh, National Foundation Blind, uh, various organizations all kind of coalescing together around the issue. And along with many other disability groups, because I, I do think that is by far with advocacy, one of the most important things, you know, we working together. Um, and uh, I just want to just kind of share in that, that it's a good thing. And uh, you're right, these issues do take time, but uh, I do think it is important, uh, you know, with the uh, bills. I know when I was in um, uh, Europe, uh, their euros, what you mentioned, what they've done is they've made each bill slightly different size by like one thirty second. So, uh, bottom line, I think it is it is important with these issues that that we just hang in there with it, be patient, although not let them go. So, I think it's good that you're reintroducing the same bills from prior Congress because uh, I think that's just so so vital. Thank, Thank you, you, Joe. Sure. Yeah, I'm not sure I mentioned this. Um, I meant to that uh, some st statistic that I ran across, uh, an estimate of uh, that it takes eight years to pass a major piece of legislation through Congress. And um, mm. I actually don't know when that was calculated, but I suspect it's it's a uh, many more years now. <laughs> yeah, it could be or at least a couple more years than eight. Yeah. Okay. Shall I go on to the next one, Sean? Is there any? Um, one waiting to speak. Go right ahead. Okay. Well, this one, um, Websites and Software Applications Accessibility Act. Um, it has not been introduced yet in this Congress. And what's this all about? Well, I think we can all agree that access to websites and online services is more important than ever to everyone's daily life. And um, 
there are physical requirements so that if I um, I open a or it could be a shoe store or a pizza shop, there are certain requirements of of access to the building and to my business that I must meet. Uh, many of them are as a result of the Americans with Disabilities Act um, passed in 1990. Uh, you know, it's, a, it's a place of public accommodation. So, but what about a medical office, library, a grocery store? There's, there's no question those are places of public accommodation. But if I access my medical provider online or a store, grocery store online, um, are those places of public accommodation? And you might say, well, sure they are. They must have been covered in the ADA. Well, think of what the internet was in 1990. It really wasn't, uh, wasn't there. So it didn't necessarily use the specific words internet. So, so what do we have? Well, we have court decisions that have disagreed that of course pu public accommodation means, uh, you know, a website to, um, to a business. And others have said, well, no, it, it wasn't mentioned. So there've been disagreements in courts. Um, and what the purpose of this legislation is that it says, well, um, it will require the Department of Justice to say for sure, it will direct them to sit to promulgate rules that say, this is what's required to be accessible. That's part of the issue too. Some businesses who even want to comply um, don't have a set of rules that have been created by the Department of Justice. So efforts have been made to begin that process over more than one presidential administration. It hasn't been completed. So the legislation says, directs DOJ to say, you know, do this, define accessibility. Um, luckily, there are guidelines out there that some website developers are using. The WCAG is the acronym of the day, the Website Content Accessibility Guidelines. So, um, it will, this, again, the legislation would say that, yes, these are places of public accommodations. You must, you know, make them accessible if they aren't, and these are guidelines to do that. Again, I've tried to simplify for time purposes, but that's essentially the issue and the proposed solution. Could you, um, could you, could you repeat the name of the website, please? Uh, I'm sorry, uh, could you repeat the question? Uh, you mentioned a couple of minutes ago on the accessibility guidance, and you mentioned like- a Oh, the, the guidelines, yeah. It's, uh -huh. it's The acronym is WCAG, Website Content Accessibility Guidelines. Okay, thank I, you. I, yeah, I, I, I would suggest Googling that or however you search. Um, I don't know of a specific website that, um, the specific website that has those guidelines, but that's what they're called, WCAG. Thank you. So be, be, as a result of sort of the situation where there doesn't seem to agree, uh, be agreement on what is required, uh, we're, we're left to 
you know, be, you know, I think we probably all experience this. If you have, if you use software, for example, like, like I've used accessibility software now for close to 20 years now. Um, sometimes you get into a website, you have to fill out a form, especially the medical portals. You want to make appointments with your doctor. So I, uh, depending, depending on the situation with the website, I have to go back to the good old telephone, which I don't mind, but it's a uh, highly inefficient and you wait on hold a long time sometimes. So that's the purpose of this, this piece of legislation is attempting to, to tackle. Um, let's see, are there any comments or questions about this before I go on? Okay, well, I, I want to mention just a couple of anecdotes about this too that, that may may help drive home some of the practical situations. Um, there are the two main uh, companies that I'm aware of for people who have to go give blood for for uh, medical purposes would be Quest and LabCorp. And I have been, it's been explained to me that LabCorp and Quest have facilities where you walk in the door, there's no receptionist, there's an iPad there, a digital display, and, and you're supposed to sign in. And then once you're signed in, the person at the facility who's going to take your blood will come out to the reception area. Well, obviously, if that digital display has no uh, accessibility features, you can't even sign in, and there's no human receptionist there to to facilitate that. Now, actually, that in those two cases, that's actually gone to court, and it has yet to be resolved as to what changes those two companies are going to have to make. And in addition, uh, the president of ACB of Virginia, Doug Powell, who lives in Falls Church, he teaches Tai Chi and Fairfax County. He has RP as well, and um, you know, depends on a screen reader and things like that and excessive technology. And he's quite good at it actually. But part of requirements for him to teach these Tai Chi classes is he has to take, a, a, well, I guess they're called video uh, courses that all the teachers have to take. Um, and he can't do them because they're not accessible. So what he's had to do over the years to be, to continue to be certified is have someone at, with the county has to go through with him so that he, you know, he can keep working. And obviously if, you know, legislation like this will tackle situations like that. Uh, there are educational portals already that are not accessible that are, you know, it's being contested. So, so the, the, the problem is out there and I'm sure, uh, some of you on this phone have experienced it, and hopefully this legislation will gather momentum in this Congress, um, because a lot of what can be done would use technology that exists. It, it's not requiring somebody to invent something that no one's ever heard of. So um, I can move on to the next issue now. Uh, this one, I, I, I will sound like a broken record, and I don't mean to, but technology exists for this particular, <laughs> the next issue. And this is called the Exercise and Fitness for All Act. It was When it was introduced in the 117th Congress, it did receive bipartisan support, which was good. Um, it, uh, I don't believe it's the last time I checked had been reintroduced yet in this Congress. 
Uh, it was the main sponsor in the Senate was Senator Duckworth of Illinois, and some of you may know that she uh, lost her legs in the war in service to our country in the war in Iraq. And uh, the situation with the Exercise and Fitness for All Act says when you go to a, a fitness facility, and uh, there are requirements to get in the building, the whether it be the uh, ramps to get in to the building, the ramps to navigate the building, the, the doorway width, even uh, within the facility itself, uh, the size of um, the regulations for the locker rooms, even the size of the water fountains, the height of the water fountains. So if you can do all that and get to the machines to actually use them, there are no requirements that the digital displays on many of these modern machines, now virtually all of them, there are no requirements that those digital displays be accessible. And um, the, so, again, to, to simply state it, the Exercise and Fitness for All access, well, you have these physical requirements. Why not um, incorporate uh, or condition environmental requirements and on also in requirements for the delivery of exercise classes. Um, I've taken some online and, and, and they will say things, you know, this is an example. They'll say, well, when you put your arms over here, that looks like this, and then you can do it this way. And in the, the words of this don't really um, help if you're not unable to see the person. And there are some excellent, exercise instructors who actually explain things very well. So the, again, the, the, that's the problem that this legislation attempts to um, to tackle. The uh, ACB has worked with, uh, I know Peloton, I'm understanding, has uh, made strides in adopting audio feedback to their digital displays. The Planet Fitness Corporation is, is actually committed to uh, installing such equipment in their facilities, but manufacturers have no requirements at this point to produce the, uh, the equipment. And um, therefore, we, we have a situation. Um, Again, I, I it was introduced in the House and the Senate last year both, so that's you know that's the good news, and we we hope in this Congress it, when it when it reintroduce it is reintroduced it will continue the momentum from the previous Congress. And I'll stop for some Q and A about this particular issue, or if anyone has any comments. Okay. I, I want to then move on to this last one is um, this is a um, this is another this is a good example this fourth issue of a situation where success was achieved and the advocacy now continues because situations have have changed and it's not anyone's fault or any, there's no plot or something or whatever to, to uh, undermine the earlier legislation. And that has to do with communications. 
some of you may, may know or remember that in 2010, after several years, a law was passed called the Communications and Video Accessibility Act, 2010. So that's well, only 12 years ago, now 13. Uh, and that piece of legislation did many things, but a couple that affects every, you know, our daily lives are it, uh, for example, mandated that uh, equipment be made accessible if formerly wasn't necessarily accessible. You, you may have been. One, one is uh, smart televisions. I, I can't remember the exact date, but I believe it was December of 2015 or 2016 where televisions produced needed to include, they needed to be, quote, smart and, and include accessibility features. Um, it also mandated or began to mandate the implementation of audio described programming for I was going to say for major television markets not all television markets in the US and it included um, what, what we have now is um, the emergency when there's an emergency scroll at the bottom of a screen that we can't see that there be a feature built in to make those crawls accessible, make it make them read through a channel in the broadcast spectrum called the um, SAP, Secondary Audio Programming Channel. Um, the CVAA was was quite successful. It um, the major television networks and the five most popular cable networks were required to introduce a certain number of hours of programming per quarter that included audio description. I'm going to assume on this call that everyone is familiar with audio description, but I'll, I'll briefly explain the concept. And that is that during a program in between dialogue, there is a feed of audio provided that describes some of the action that you can't know about if you can't see. And um, the audio description that was required in this act in 2010, ultimately, and it's gotten, it was, again, it was introduced gradually. And we are at a point now where the law essentially has gone as far as it can go. Uh, for example, the requirements now are that about one hour per quarter is required. So a very popular TV program such as NCIS, which my wife watches all the time, she can see, <laughs> uh, has audio description. And, but not all programs are required to have audio description. Well, the update to this law, which is expected to be introduced this year, was introduced in 2022 in the old, in the last Congress. Would, would simply say, just like closed captioning, which is now required, uh, the audio description will be required in all markets, not just the top 25 or the top 100 television markets, and it will be required for all programs. And this is, <laughs> this is something that I know has sometimes uh, occurred and frustrated me. If a movie is... Um, is produced with audio description 
and that movie is then shown on you know broadcast on television sometimes they do that and they don't include the audio description track well this legislation would take care of that and say that if the movie has it you must you must include it there are other provisions in this act that update the 2010 act that talk about the uh, delivery of communication and video equipment and devices uh, for, for example in, in the 2010 act affected pro uh, hardware such as my uh, my cable box that I have and the Verizon person came and uh, I explained that you know you need to turn on the uh, text-to-speech so that I can work the remote that they give you and and she didn't know what it was and that's understandable in some respects I probably had never been trained contacted her supervisor her supervisor didn't know what it was <laughs> but eventually they realized what could be done and they turned on the text-to-speech and showed me how to do it so now I can do all the settings I need to do with my remote and it, it talks and that's the type of thing that the 2010 bill, and it was really a legislative, um, I think, turning point. But it has gone about as far as it can go. So we're now we're um, hoping to introduce or get a sponsor to again introduce the Communications and Video Technology Act of 2023. Um, I realize that was kind of a quick summation of what we're looking for here, but if anyone has any questions or comments, I'd appreciate it. Yes, I would like just to comment on the um, movies. I am very uh, blessed that our nearest theater does have it. And the first time we went there, I didn't even have to ask for it. I was using my white cane and the attendant offer it to me. And I must say, I was very impressed. I really like using it. So I encourage those of you that have not had the opportunity to try to really give it a chance. I think it works well. Thank you. Would you mind telling me what theater it was? That's very impressive. <laughs> uh, that is the Alamo. Uh, I think there is another part of the name is uh, one of those theaters where you can eat in the in, in, while watching the movie. They mm -hmm, have mm -hmm. restaurants and all that, but they have one here in the Woodbridge area and the Wackman's Plaza. I know they have others and um, it's very convenient because their seating is very comfortable. You can recline. Yeah. You have, you also have the table for eating or to put any other of your devices. So the entire experience is complementary to the audio capability, it makes it more comfortable for me, at least. <laughs> That's great. And, and yeah, the movie theaters, I, I do encourage people to, um, to take advantage of the theaters that who, uh, the AMC I know had a, had a program of, you know, training their people, um, I have gone to the theater sometimes and been given, unfortunately, the wrong piece of equipment. So you have to, you know, be sure the person is, you know, hopefully they've been trained. But when it works, it is it is terrific. It's life changing. I I, I don't um, think that's an exaggeration at all. It really is.
Okay, I have um, a couple final items to to mention that if uh, I think people may be interested in um, it. Part of this, I, I hope one of the things I hope because I I know I'm throwing a lot of information at people. And part of what I'd like to do is uh, as a takeaway is to encourage people to, um, if they you know see something that uh, or experience something that they need to, they feel a need to advocate about, that they begin to take steps to do so, uh, whether it be local, state, or federal. I, I know locally, I'm still, <laughs> after all these years, I've lived in my particular house 30 years. And I live very close to a metro station, the East Falls Church station. And um, they have, they installed, didn't exist when I moved in, but I, I and this, sometimes it's this easy. Um, I thought they needed an accessible pedestrian signal, an APS near the metro, because as with many metro stations, it's extremely busy uh, with, with uh, vehicle traffic. And the person in, who I contacted is, again, 30 years ago, came to the intersection and met me there and without any hesitation arranged to have something installed. But over those 30 years, the systems themselves have changed, which we could do a whole program on, Sean. I won't start that topic now. But um, they uh, car damaged one of the poles once, so it didn't work for six months or so before they could fix it. They've installed different types of APS systems. But, but the point is, they did it, and um, and that's something that I think many people at the local level uh, can can uh, have an effect on. Um, st statewide, um, an issue that some of us in ACBVA of Virginia have uh, advocated uh, about is a voting, specifically, well, two two respects, voting in person. And depending on where you live, and depending on if the people in your particular polling precinct have been trained, it works great. I mean, I've had I've had one failure in Arlington about, oh gosh, it's almost 20 years ago now, at least 15, where they the machine didn't work as it was supposed to. These are, I'm talking about audio machines, so that you can, with earphones, have the machine explain to you the ballot and vote. In the last at least dozen years. Uh, it's worked just so smoothly and partly because the people in the precinct know the equipment, they know how to turn it on. And I'm some elections, I'm sure I'm the only blind or low vision person mm -hmm. who uses it, but it works. And um, we've had experiences with some of our members um, where they've shown up and the people literally, and in some cases, I don't know that it was their fault. They weren't trained on how to turn on the mm -hmm. audio, audio ballot. So we're working on that related to voting and also absentee voting. And I I go to the poll, so I I have not had this ex particular experience, but the laws have been changed to allow the delivery of a ballot to the mm -hmm. voter electronically. Um, but the the voter then has to print the ballot put it in an envelope, sign the envelope, and return it. Hmm. And the the obvious situation is, well, if I can't see it, how do I know it printed properly, and mm -hmm. where, where do I sign? Well, there have been attempts to, to um, what I want to say, rectify that situation. The most 
I guess, obvious and also most controversial solution would be to allow for the electronic return of the ballot. Mm -hmm. And when that is mentioned, a lot of red flags go up and say, well, there would be security flaws. And I hear to report that state by state, different um, results have occurred. And I know Indiana was the most recent state to pass legislation that will allow the return of the ballot electronically so that people who use screen readers can receive the ballot, vote, and and return the ballot without having to print it and use their eyesight, which they don't have or they have in very limited amounts. Um, We're not there in Virginia. Um, Mm -hmm. I, I know that the security is the first thing that comes up when you talk about electronic returns. But a couple of points of note are that you might remember that um, the news um, during election season made a big issue of people actually voting absentee from the space station. And that was seen as kind of, isn't that kind of cute, you know, nice, you know, cute news story. Well, if those people can vote electronically from the space station, <laughs> I think that I should be able to vote from my house electronically and have any security issues taken care of that were taken care of for the mm-hmm. the electron people who voted from the space station. And, and one more thing I'll add, there already is a system set up, and I'm going to botch this this acronym. It's the UOCVA, Uniform Overseas, basically military and overseas citizens can vote uh, electronically now. And so what these, again, it's going state by state. I believe West Virginia has also passed this um, to allow the electronic return. So that's that that will be an issue that will go on for as long as we have elections until until it's until it's successful. Um, I just want to give my, before I open it up for Q&A and any comments on anything we've talked about, my email address again is mostreliable at verizon.net. And I'm, I'm, you know, look forward to hearing from anybody who has any interest. And again, you probably will be informing me of things I don't know, but I'm happy to uh, establish any kind of communication and um, assistance from anybody who wants to help advocate any of these issues. And with that, I'll I'll open for any Q and A and any comments people have. Hi, um, so my name is Joy, and I'm a board member on the Commission of Aging for the City of Alexandria. And I guess on a local level, um, how could we support the low vision uh, community? Uh, I currently serve on the health committee, and we've been trying to find out ways of to support um, vision hearing um, and speech community, but it's hard because, um, well, for one, I'm not part of the community, but we um, recognized a lot of the issues that you mentioned, uh, such as um, adapting to technology and how we can spread the awareness um, and accessibility for the low vision uh, community. 
and um, legislation taking so long, like what are some low tech solutions or what are some immediate solutions we could offer um, to help uh, the community? Wow, yeah, that opens up a whole lot of potential topics. Um, Joy, can I assume that then with, with one of the interpretations I'm having is you're saying people come to you as part of the um, aging commission with with day-to-day issues that they need help with um, in, involve vision or lack thereof. Is, is that the situation you're finding? Well, we started to where to address um, some topics related to health and one of the areas that we believe are uh, missed or um, are not really addressed as much are the low uh, vision or vision community. So um, not that uh, people have necessarily come quite as yet, but we would like to advocate support or find out solutions on how to um, create solutions. So more of um, how could we advocate, like what can the health committee do and um, the, as as board members for the Commission of Aging, what can we do to support the low vision community? Um, whether it's through policy or it's through um, creating um, more awareness about the services like you mentioned um, with technology and having digital um, screens. But if a person has um, issues with vision, um, they would need uh, auditory um, enhancement. Or for instance, if they go to a public location, as you stated, and there isn't a human person and everything is digital, there isn't a human person available, like what could we do? Do we have to go through legislation or could we just simply go to uh, local businesses and um, advocate and ask people if they have someone to assist anyone in the event that they have vision? Like where should we start? (laughs) Wow, yeah. Um, six different places is the short answer. I think your your suggestion of going to the specific business or service provider is is a great place to start because one of the things that I think um, is true uh, again this gets back to numbers is businesses or or service providers the more they hear about something, the more they'll think that they need to do something. Like if one person uh, complains, is really not the right word, but it brings to their attention that such and such is happening, sometimes it's just not enough. But if, but if routinely people hear that, by the way, your website isn't accessible or you can't, use this machine because the digital display is inaccessible. If they hear that routinely, even if they um, don't think they're legally required, I think there have been successes based on the number of instances they're contacted. And I think an entity such as your commission, Commission on Aging, is will provide the type of um, oh, 
inquiry that would cause a reaction of a business. And in addition, you certainly can make your, your local uh, elected officials in Alexandria and even the state representatives in the Virginia General Assembly aware that these things are happening because they're like a lot of people. They have issues all the time on a lot of subjects. And if they hear many complaints about the same subject, they're more more likely to take action. Uh, and in Virginia, too, depending on the particular issue, the Virginia Department for the Blind and Vision Impaired is set up and required to act on behalf of people who are have blind uh, issues related to their blindness and low vision and deaf blindness for that matter. I hope that was helpful for suggestions, um, Joy and, uh, and others. And if you want to contact me, Joy, uh, at my email address, I'd be happy to, uh, to do some more, you know, research about specific questions that, that you have. And I, and, um, I'm, again, I'm just happy to help. Yes, I would love to. Hopefully, if you're available, maybe you could even attend one of our health committee meetings and help uh, us create uh, a goal uh, on how we can advocate and support uh, the community. Well, I'd be glad to do that. Hopefully, we can work that out. Yay. Thank you so much. You're welcome. Hey, uh, to both of you, Joy and the moderator or the uh, speaker, can you hear me? Yes. Um, I wanted to point out on your last point, sir, that you're talking about how so many services this day and age, including voted, could be done on a fully electronic manner. Uh, one of the problems that we have with the elderly community, and I'm speaking in behalf of the many veterans um, that are in that situation, I myself, I'm one of them, uh, but I work with the low vision clinic of the Washington DC hospital, the VA hospital, is that we, you know, we, it's easy to request that something is done electronically, but then it is likely that your system is gonna require certain types of software, security and whatnot. And not every elderly person is gonna have the latest computer with all of the gadgets mm. and for security. And so yeah. for Joy, that is a point as well, because we saw it vividly during COVID when kids have to stay at home and they didn't have adequate computers to attend classes electronically. So this is definitely a pervasive problem that is not going to be easy resolved. And I, even though I have also been in systems development, sometimes the best solution is not necessarily the highest high tech solution because it's not the common tech that is being used by the population in question. That's it. That's a very good point that there, there, there um, are many considerations that need to be made when solutions are proposed and evaluated and implemented. I have even heard of a system, um, a blind person I 
heard on a podcast who lives in New Zealand talked about where he voted using uh, a regular telephone. Hmm. And I don't know the, all the specifics about it, but I'm sure there were some, you know, passwords you had to type in and things like that. And so um, that is certainly something different than, as, as you indicated, the person with a, who would need the most modern, up-to-date computer to vote. Um, but your point is well taken, and, and I think it's important as these solutions are proposed, evaluated, and implemented that the realization is that not everybody has the latest and greatest, and I'll, I'll raise my hand on that one, that I don't have the latest and greatest <laughs> piece of technology either. Yeah. And it's always updating. It could be every week, every month. <laughs> and then it's yeah, different it's for different providers or services or whoever. It, it's, it's really hard to keep up with. Um, like, for instance, we during our health committee, we were talking about the grand pad and how um, it wasn't, it ended up being obsolete because it was too low tech and a lot of uh, the programs weren't compatible with some of the health portals that you mentioned or. Um, oh, that's interesting. Yeah, mm -hmm. I can see that. Yeah. Oh my gosh. I didn't even thought of that. Mm -hmm. Oh, very good. This has been very, very helpful for me. I've enjoyed uh, listening to this. Are there other comments, questions as we begin to wrap up? I think Sean, we're, how are we doing on time? Doing okay. Yeah, I think maybe one or two more questions and um, we'll be at our time. Okay. Anyone have anything? Uh, Paul? Yes. Yes, Joe Walker again. And just as a way of self identification, I also work with Sean as a low vision resource navigator. And I would echo uh, what you've been saying the entire time. And I think it's really important for the low vision community, the, the real importance of self-advocacy. Um, there's no question if you go to a merchant and you make them aware, for instance, your site is not accessible, uh, because frankly, the term accessible, many businesses will just automatically say we're accessible. And many times they will say, oh, well, no one ever told us it wasn't kind of thing. So. Mm -hmm. So there is ways, obviously, to to check that. Um, and then the other, as far as the um, the movies you share, and we share that with a lot of our clients, a lot of folks actually don't know about that. Um, the experience I've noted, most of the uh, AMC theaters do seem to comply quite well. Um, we did have a theater open in our neighborhood about a year ago, Montgomery Mall. And unfortunately, I've been there five times now, and each time they still have not put it in. So the important thing though yeah. is, well, but you can still do it pleasantly. You can still say, yeah. it's really, uh, frankly, it's usually what you already said. It's training. It's the, even though verbally, even though verbally they said, you know, we have the technology, if their staff is not trained and many times it, the manners are themselves. So, but I guess the important thing is we should always uh, self-advocate because I, I do think I find sometimes in our community, folks may ruminate, you know, something hasn't changed, it's not working, but, you know, it's really important if the person brings it up, it, it does help. And the businesses, I agree, will respond, particularly if they 
if it's done in a articulate manner, you know, directly. But so that was just my overall comment. So I do think that's really important. And that's where we have seen changes. Yeah. Well, good. Thank you, June. Thank you for what you do. Sure. Of course. Appreciate it. Yeah. Great. If you allow me one last comment. Um, sure. I would like very much to encourage uh, all of the speakers and the listeners and the members of the society to whenever you encounter a new customer, um, ask them if they have been a veteran because whether the, they have an eye condition related to their service or not, they may be entitled to some benefits. We're finding now way too many people that wait until very late in life to finally show up to the VA hospital. And they were not aware that they could get uh, low vision uh, care. They could get all kinds of gadgets and gadgets and uh, depending on their circumstances. But the important part is to ensure that they are able to connect with their nearest hospital, whether it is Baltimore or DC or Richmond, and uh, seek to communicate with the low vision clinic. And they will be more than happy to provide services to you, to the individual, whether it is, you know, at least to guide them to determine whether indeed they are entitled or not, but it's, it's worth giving it a shot. Thank you. Thank you for that. I had a question. So how do you guys reach your communities? Is it self-identified or is there a database uh, that is accessible to everyone? Or how do you do your outreach? And thank you, everybody, for your comments. Well, I would say that there are several organizations in the DMV, and to the extent we can, we um, provide a listserv that anyone, for example, the ACB of Virginia has a listserv, and you, you don't have to be a member of the organization to subscribe. And there are the various, the rest of the NVIP, obviously Prevention and Blindness has their list. Um, if you, sometimes if you're just on one of the lists, you end up getting announcements from several others um, there, there's really, I'm just trying to think if there's any one formula, there really isn't just contact as many as you can. Um, one great source for those of you who, who may be aware or may not is the Metropolitan Washington Ear uh, have, produces a weekly uh, email to any of their subscribers. Subscription is free. Uh, I'll even give the number for the year. It's 301 681 6636, um, 301-681-6636. And what I find so beneficial about it is you can find information and meetings. Um, there's a support group in Alexandria or something with the technology users group of Baltimore. I mean, it's an incredibly comprehensive email that they send every Friday. And I would say that'd be a great place to start is, uh, you know, become a subscriber to the year and um, they provide a lot of other services, which I don't need to go into today, but the 
that email that they send every Friday is extremely comprehensive and widespread. The other thing I can add to for POB, you asked about how we do outreach. Um, we reach out to different government agencies, primarily departments of aging and disabilities, because that's just where most of our uh, potential, how, where more, more people we could help would be located or would be referencing. And then we also go to senior living communities a lot and uh, we're given presentations. So if there's any senior living communities you think we should go to, and uh, please feel free to, you can connect them to myself. Uh, I'm our program director. So I'd be happy to set up something like that. We love getting out and raising more awareness when it comes to low vision and also the resources and services that are available because there are so many. Thank you, you all. I'll be contacting you both. Okay, thank you. All right, any other questions? Otherwise, we will wrap up. Well, thanks. I would like to thank everyone who uh, was on the call and everyone who participated. I found it to be very helpful for me. And Sean, thanks you again and POB for all you guys do. Your programs are normally A+. Uh, hello, this is Nancy. Can you just repeat that phone number again? Three, 301? Oh, 301-681-6636. Thank you. You're welcome. Thank you very much. Paul, thank you very, very much. This was a really great presentation, very informative. And folks, we will have this recording available uh, later this week.